When I was a young pastor back in the 70s, some of my mentors, one in particular, suggested that I study advertising to learn how people got other people's attention to change their minds about topics or products. But back in the 70s, the goal of advertising was to get people in the showroom. So if you were advertising cars, you wanted them to come to your showroom, and then a salesman would talk to them about buying a car. Uh, There have been some recent, in our country, um, stories about British department stores. Um, Mr. Selfridge. And one of the things that you saw in that, in the beginning of big department stores, was you had all of these people who worked at their counters to sell you things. You know, today, when we think about how people buy products, you know, when you walk into some stores, you're lucky if you can find somebody to say, where is something? And now even cars can be bought online without having to interact with people. But advertising is still there in our cyber world, in our print world, television, radio. It's to try to create a desire to get you to seek something out, to change your mind. One of the things that has happened is that with all the information that people give just by visiting a site, you don't have to go to social media, but if you go and look something up, I remember one day when I was going to do some uh, block work and I went at Home Depot and I was looking at their blocks, you know, their cement blocks and their stones and their this and that. And then all of a sudden I noticed that in my Facebook feed, I started getting Home Depot ads for cement-related products. That that world was, you know, one world was connected to the other. But it has helped me think about people's desires. What are people seeking? What are they wanting? What is in their heart that, that motivates them, that directs them, that... Maybe decides how they spend their time, their money, their emotional capital. And see, I was thinking about that as we come to this passage in John about worship and Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. Now, as I've said before, John chooses different stories, and in those stories, that really happened, Jesus is making points. And sometimes it's to the crowd, sometimes it's to the disciples. Remember last week we were looking at Jesus and Thomas? Well, here we have this Samaritan woman. And Jesus brings the conversation around because of the differences, not just ethnically, between Jesus, a Jew, and the Samaritan woman who had had five husbands. 
They start talking about worship. And she's focusing on the place. But one of the things she knows about is the idea of the Messiah coming. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. What I think is the central focus point of what he is teaching, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, whether you use translate seeking or the Father desires, you know, when I think of the word seeking, I think about the shepherd that goes out and looks for the lost sheep to bring back to the 99. When I think about seeking, I think about God's grace in reaching out to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he sent the Holy Spirit to change our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, that we only worship because he has sought us and brought us in. That is part of the Father's activity in salvation is to create worshipers. Now, oftentimes you would think salvation is only just to create workers. In other words, to produce more people to go out and evangelize, more people to go out and do works of ministry. But this reminds us that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's his desire. That's what he wants for us. He wants to create that desire to worship him in our hearts, in our lives, in our daily routines. Verse 24 tells us God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Because he's already said when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, it may not be the first thing that jumps out to you. But one of the things that I was praying and thinking about this was, this is a New Testament commentary on the first and the second commandment. Remember, no other gods, no images, spirit and truth. God is a spirit. He is not created. All of us are created. We look around and we think... Francis Schaeffer used to tell us that it's very hard for people to think about nothing, nothing. He used to love to use double words. Because every time we think of nothing, we think of something. You think about outer space. You know, whether you watch Star Trek or Star Wars... It's still part of the creation. It's still part of what God made. God is spirit. And we live in an age where images are all around us. Images that we see, images that we hear in music. You know, one of the things when we sing hymns, it creates images in our minds of God's grace, of God's faithfulness, of God's provision. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. All throughout Israel's history, 
There was this battle with the nations, with false gods, with false idols, things that people had created. The Samaritans who had part of it right, but not all of it, they worshipped in a separate place on a different mountain because they weren't welcome, because they weren't ethnically pure to come to the temple. But this idea of worshipping in spirit and in truth and getting those images out of your mind, Because that's what spirit is in contrast to. It's in contrast to images. It's a contrast to that which is created. To realize that only God is eternal. That only God is spirit. Because everything else has been created by him. And truth. One of the things that we see in the book of John is this discussion about truth and The Father reveals truth, the Son reveals truth. That we have been given the way to worship. Remember that early scene in the Bible? Adam and Eve have sinned. They've disobeyed God and they know it. And so what do they try to do? They tried to hide from the Creator. They tried to hide from the one that they used to walk with. What does God do? God goes seeking. God goes looking. He doesn't just leave them to wander around with no way out. Yes, they are pushed out of the garden. Into a different world. Still part of the creation. But it's got weed, it's got hardships. They'll learn about droughts, a lack of water. Because what was the first decision? Was the father, the creator, telling the truth? Or was the serpent telling the truth? See, that's one of the things when we come to worship God, we have to decide, are we coming to worship the true and the living God? Are we doing something that is real? Something that God seeks? This is a God who has loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins, to take our place, to be that substitutionary sacrifice. While we were his enemies, while we were running away, the truth is God sent his son because he was seeking us to pay for our sins, to bring us into the family, to give us the Holy Spirit so that we might cry out, Abba, Father. To worship in spirit and in truth. To worship the way he wants us to worship him. Now, I don't know, because I haven't really looked in, I didn't even think about looking into it. For the past 10 to 15 years in the United States, they have what they have deemed the worship wars between different styles of worship, between contemporary worship and between traditional worship, between liturgical worship. And see, I think one of the things that has gotten lost in the 
style wars is the whole idea of the presence of God. That it's not about the people who are up front. It's not about the people who are in the audience. Because one of the things that some people have come away with is the idea that worship is something that I'm a spectator in. I know that when I was an Air Force chaplain and I would do worship services in military chapels, one of the things I tried to figure out is how do I get men involved? The women seemed to be very active. They understood they were there. But a lot of the men had what I called screensaver looks. They were there, but they weren't engaged. They'd stand up, but they wouldn't sing. And see, if we believe that God desires us to worship him in spirit and truth, it means to do something that is really countercultural, really against the way people think, because a lot of people, you know, it's not true if you can't see, feel, and touch it, right? Now, how do we touch God? He gives us the body of Christ. We are one of the ways when we touch each other's lives that we touch God because he has touched us as individuals. We don't become gods, but God dwells in us. That saying that I use, that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, that's one of the ways to start the morning so that you know it's not an empty day. In spirit and in truth. I can know who God is. I can know who he really is. I can check, you can check, what I say against the word of God. But think about that. This connection between spirit and truth in the first and the second commandments. No other gods, no images. I realize that's a shortcut, but... And I'm I'm here to tell you that when Israel, was leaving in, when Israel was leaving Egypt, they were leaving a lot of images. When I was in Cairo during the first Gulf War, before the war started, we used to go on these basically tourist trips. And they took us down to the Nile River because we were going to get in these boats and go through what was called the Pharaonic Village. Now, it's kind of, um, you have a lot of these historic villages where you go and you see reenactments and things like that. Well, this was, you first what you did was you went down this reed-infested, I mean, you know, it looked like it was straight out of a Bible scene. But you would stop and a, a speaker would tell you in English who that God was. So we had about 12 of those that we learned about. But you know what I learned? Every one of those gods had a flip side. The god of healing was the god of disease. So is he going to come and visit you with disease or with healing? And then perhaps the most dramatic thing I saw was of this kind of diorama, this thing where they do something and you, you know, it's lifelike in size. 
but it was for the feather of truth. Because what they did was they would take your heart and put it on the scale, and then they would put the feather of truth on the other side. And I said, you know, that's, that's, that's works, isn't it? Have I been good enough to go to the next level? Not has Christ saved me. Christ paid for my sins as a substitute. But look in verse 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here. Do you see the urgency that he is creating with this woman and then ultimately with his disciples and then with us, his readers? When he says, the hour is coming and is now here, we are living in that here. That here where the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Where he's going out and he's reaching out to him. Now, this woman goes with the information she has. Verse 25 says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You see what she's looking for? She's looking for information. She is looking and saying, he's going to tell us all things. That words alone are the answer. How many people today are trying to find out the magic words, trying to connect things, and just if I can get, just get this right? But what does he do? He inserts himself in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. It's about knowing me. Knowing Christ is the way you know the information about him in spirit, and in truth. Now, one of the things that Jesus does in saying this, I who speak to you am he, he wants us to understand, as well as this woman, that he is the Son of God, that he is fully man, and he is that living Lamb of God who is going to become the sacrifice. He is the one where we have the the intersection, the bridge between the world we live in and where God is. I am he. See, I can give you all the information about Jesus Christ. I can tell you and give you all the arguments from over the ages. But unless you come to that point or unless someone comes to that point where they say, yes, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You really are the only way to the Father. To see that and to understand that. And then to share that with the world. Because, you know, John, remember last week, he wrote so that people would believe. What he said, what he did. He says there's all kinds of stories out there. But I'm writing these so that you would believe. This is a verse in a story in John 4 
which is kind of an extended story. But yet it, it reaches in and reminds us that Christ stopped and intentionally interacted with this woman. Who was a you know, first thing in terms of the disciples, you know, what's he doing talking to a woman? Second thing, what's he doing talking to a Samaritan woman? Three, what's he doing talking to a divorcee, a five-time divorcee, who's living with another man? He stops and talks to her because she is worthy of both his time and his message. We cannot judge people by their sins and say they are unreachable. It is God's grace, it is his word, it is spirit who can reach people that we have no idea how we're going to reach them. But we know they need Jesus. They need the Messiah. And they don't need just information about the Messiah, but they really need him. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection, I am the vine, the shepherd, the gate, all of those things. Because ultimately, we have to come to the one who Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And so the gospel goes out to the Samaritans, to these people that people literally would cross the road not to be near them. Now, sometimes in American cinema, portraying some of the old ages, you would see where people would walk across the street so they wouldn't have to be anywhere near someone who's like that. But here's Jesus, seeking out, willing to take water from someone that was a three-time, three strikes, and Jesus still came to her. Because, he says, the Father is seeking, and he is part of the Father seeking people to worship him. And see, that's one of the beautiful things about worship is that it is God, Father-centered, Christ-focused, Spirit-empowered. Let me go through that again. Worship is God the Father-centered, Christ-focused, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's something I'm going to be unpacking, helping us understand that in our own worship because we worship the Trinity. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you stopped and talked. We thank you that you sought us out so that we could come worship you. We pray that every time that as we come to worship, it's not about us, it's about you. It's about us being in your presence. It's not about us getting our way and feeling comfortable, but it's about us knowing that we are in the presence of God. That that's what counts, and that you gave your son so that we could come. And so we pray, Father, that as we sing, as we close this service, that your presence, your love for us, would be made known in this service. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.